Podcast number three, and today I am joined by Peter Burke, the founder of CrossFit 353, which is a CrossFit gym located on Bath Avenue in Dublin 4, and has been open since 2013. Peter was also a pupil at St. Michael's and graduated in 2005, if I'm not mistaken. And now thanks to just kick things off, I always ask, how are you getting on today, Peter? Great, Richie. Thanks a million. Uh, delighted to be here. Superb, superb. Well, just to get the p- political question out of the way, um, what would your memories coming through St. Michael's be and being part of the sco- senior school and the senior cycle and basically what type of pupil were you and what were your fond memories? Um, load of question there. Um, yeah, very, very, very positive. Even walking in, I ran into Tim Keller, ran into Aidan O'Donnell. Um, we walked along with the library earlier and saw pictures of Larry McHugh and Father Little and flooded with nostalgia and, and very positive memories. I actually joined um, into second class and had an incredible teacher by the name of Carmel O'Neill. I'm not sure if she's around, but any of the uh, the early guys would remember Carmel would be in um, picking up rubbish in the yard before school started. And I couldn't understand it as, as yeah. an eight or a nine-year-old, but an incredibly uh, caring and loving woman. So my initial uh, welcome to St. Michael's was phenomenal. had a great experience in the junior school. Um, in terms of a student, I guess, I came in, I stayed back a year, uh, I came in at second class and I stayed back a year when I joined. So Malcolm Gladwell talks in, in Outliers about guys being born at the right time of the year and how they go on to be good at sport or whatever. Well, I was about the same size as I was in second class as I am now. So I came in and was captain of the rugby team yeah. and good in school and came from an, a national school in Clontarf. So my, my Irish was way better than everybody. So... I just had the dream start, I guess. Um, plenty of pals, decent at rugby. So, uh, yeah, hugely positive in the junior school. Um, I guess being the biggest kid on the rugby team, uh, everyone was great. You ran with the ball. And myself and Dara Fanning duped it out for a few years. But as is the case, the biggest guy may- maybe doesn't get developed as well. So uh, very quickly everyone caught up. And I had gone from a position of grave importance at eight Mm-hmm. Uh, to significantly less important at 10, 11 when everyone is as big as me. So, uh, yeah, rugby was massive. It's an identity in the school. And, and I guess back then we were the great pretenders and, and the kind of little brother of, of Black Rock trying to emulate constantly. Um, first year, the guys like Frank Carney and Ron O'Connor and Dave Mahoney came in and these guys were a different level and gave us a real hard cutting edge. Um, and it was great. Like we were competitive. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, if I'm waffling, just stop me. But no, no. In, t- in terms, in terms of a student, I guess I was, I was okay. I was lucky in that um, I applied myself to my studies. Um, I didn't mind it particularly, but I really enjoyed it here. I, people kind of ask what kind of school it was um, retrospectively, and I said Michael's was an incredible place where if you wanted to do very well, you could, but if you wanted to go in and have a great time, you could kind of do that as well and nobody would give you too much trouble. So um, great for some, maybe some guys 
didn't benefit as much from that. But um, yeah, look, without going on, thoroughly enjoyed my time in the senior school. Rugby a huge part of it, but uh, learned loads, great pals, great mentors and role models. Nice. And obviously with the end of the senior cycle comes the leaving cert and then the impending pressure of the CAO in college. So post leaving cert, where did you end up in college? I went... um, a stone throw up the road up to UCD I, when I was driving in earlier by the pavilion. I actually remembered finishing my, my last exam. I can't remember what it was, but it was a smashing day at the end of June 2005. And I sat out in the grass with Andy Keane and a couple of the guys. And this bizarre feeling of uh, this anticlimactic, well, that's it, we're done. Yeah. Never again. So uh, it was a beautiful day. So we probably went on the beer or something. But... Um, I applied for a couple of bits. I applied for Bess in Trinity. I applied for Commerce in UCD. Why? I don't know. Um, I guess we're told coming up that do something you're interested in rather than what your points will allow, but the vast majority of the opposite. Um, so I ended up in UCD uh, doing BCom as generic a business degree as you can do because I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. And just we- to stop you there, was there any kind of career guidance at any stage or was it just a case of you're an individual you pick what college course you do and just hope that you enjoy it rather than you actually being educated on different courses yeah it's it's peculiar there definitely was uh, career guidance and I remember Barry Kelleher doing dash tests potentially or yeah we'd have a Wednesday last class where we're filling in boxes on mechanical reasoning but our application at 16 and 17 to this was limited we wanted to go look at girls or play rugby or muck around so there absolutely was career guidance but uh, I think it was a funny one where I was the first person in my in my family and extended family to go to university so I didn't have um, the benefit of a cousin or a auntie or a brother to say I think you should study X um, so yeah I, I just kept it broad in general I didn't know what I wanted to do so I was like I'll go up to UCD and do commerce um, I met a uh, Harry Cregan in the Marriott is Harry yeah Harry. Charlie, Charlie Charlie sorry I'm always mixing them he'll kill me for that <laughs> but I met uh, Charlie and and Emmett and I was saying to Charlie when I was in UCD I spent I'd say 90% of my time here in the great black hole that is the coaches yeah. change room and uh, myself and and the likes of Chris O'Connor and uh, Andy Skeen and Robbie O'Flynn and, and Greg and there's great memories and great fun but uh I ended up kind of mucking up my college. I got a 2-2 in my commerce mm. for some peculiar reason. Um, well, exact reason I know that I was, I was here. Um, didn't really apply myself to college that much. It was like, I have my identity. I know what I'm doing. I'm kind of a rugby guy. I'm coaching rugby. I'm playing rugby. This isn't that important. I've done my leaving cert. So uh, a little bit of a regret that I didn't apply myself a little bit more to college. Um, but some incredibly fond memories and uh, good times coaching here through my, my college years. Nice. And when you finished your degree, what was next on the agenda? Did you go straight into work? Did you go away? Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's it's almost the same plus four years where finished school, had no great plan. Finished uh, the BCom, had no great plan. So I kind of just followed the path that so many had followed before me, which was, oh, well, I better do a master's now. I better put off real world living and, and, mm. and put, kick that can down the road a bit before committing. So... I went up to Smurfit um, and I, through, through school and college, similar to Tom in your, in your last podcast or one of, the, one of the earlier ones, 
wasn't great at the the financials, wasn't great at the maths or the statistics. So I was like, get away from accounting. Didn't particularly like it. So I did a, a master's in marketing up in, in Smurfit. And there's a couple of masters up there, but this one was called a marketing development program where you dress up and, and play office for a year. Um, you get a bit of stick from your peers up there because you're, you're in full business attire and you're doing commercial projects. And while you do get a bit of, bit of stick, it was actually a really good year. It's your first taste of commercial business life in a kind of a safe setting. So I did that for a year, <clears throat> finished that, um, same thing, plus one year, didn't really know what I wanted to do. People were speaking about this Jemison graduate program as being highly regarded in the marketing sphere. Did I want to do marketing? Didn't really know. I said I'd, I'd keep the ball rolling, I'll, I'll apply for that. Um, applied for one job, thankfully got it, and the next thing I know I'm off to on a plane to Oslo. And what took place in Oslo? Um, yeah, so... Uh, I was very lucky to get this job with Jemison. Yeah. Um, I think it was a pretty sought-after career at the time. And the story we had heard was the guys give you a credit card, they send you off to market and you party for a year and you buy drinks and you go out. Um, so I was all up for this. That was great. Um, little did I know that, that Scandinavia was a dark market in regards to alcohol. Yeah. So you get over there, you can't advertise, you can't buy someone a drink, you can't... Uh, put up a poster or sell a billboard so I was sitting in Pernod Ricard in, in, in Oslo my first job ever effectively with nothing to do so uh, what did I do I, I went back to what I knew I, I looked up a rugby club um, I got involved in a rugby club there Oslo Rugby Club um, and as I grew older my ability as a player was waning and I knew to stay involved at a some sort of level I needed to start coaching so I kind of played one game and uh, moved into coaching and that went really well and the further I get into the coaching we ended up winning a national championship that year with Oslo um, the more I get into the coaching I was kind of doing less in work and more in coaching um, so did that went along um, the end of the year came around my my contract with Jemison elapsed there was talk about moving to the States I wasn't so sure but the national coach at the time had quit or had moved on and the guys were in an impasse uh, for one game so they were due to play Nor- uh, Norway due to play Sweden in September um, and Sweden were ranked 50th and, and Norway ranked 92nd and the head of Norwegian rugby just rang me he knew I'd done well with Oslo and the, and the regional competition now bear in mind this is an incredibly low level yeah. of rugby um, and he just goes would you give us a dig out so uh, I'll never forget I was 22 or 23 and I'm walking out to the, the first training camp in Bergen, carrying the water bottles. And there's there's guys here who've played 15 years of rugby, they're mid to late 30s, looking at me going, is this kid the water the water boy? And um, pretty quickly you need to establish ground rules and, and, and get buy-in and say, guys, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and thankfully that one game went on to been offered the job full-time. When I say full-time, it was eight weekends a year, but... Um, yeah, an incredible journey. Absolutely unbelievable experience at 23, coaching full adults in a national setup. Um, admittedly, a very uh, amateur setup, as you can imagine, being the 15th sport in Norway. But an outrageous uh, opportunity and something that I, there's no way I appreciate at the time, but I look back on with incredibly fond memories and incredibly proud of now. And you touch on it there, you're 23 and you're bossing around 30-year-olds <laughs> who've been around the block a lot longer than you had what kind of learnings did you take from that that you could carry on when you got back to Ireland on future jobs future coaching jobs whatever like basically what learnings did you take from 
being kind of inexperienced in other people's eyes, but then also having to prove that you are knowledgeable about the topic at hand. In this case, it was rugby. Um, like, what learnings did you take, or what did you learn about yourself? Yeah, I, I guess um, I'd be quite a reflective person, and, and I based a lot of my coaching on some of the coaching I may have received in my formative years. So some good, some bad, but even as a young man, I'd reflect and say, well, was that good for me? Did that work for me? And I think I took a lot of the positives growing up, but also learned from some of the things as work-ons. So as a coach, um, my philosophy or attitude would be to be seen and heard least. I'm there to facilitate the players. I'm there to help them. So if Richie and Keane and Ross go out and they're killing the lineouts and the scrums I sit back and say nothing like we, we chatted briefly about St Mary's Cahill Marsh came up um, on return from injury and played with us a couple of weeks ago um, and I t- text Cahill after the game just saying Cahill thanks so much you, you've really helped us but also him being on the training pitch makes my job I, I don't do anything he's an incredibly high level professional yeah. he's a really effective communicator so when Cahill's on the pitch Cahill runs the show and I just stand back and watch and with my notepad out and take a few notes so to answer your question um, I guess you can't bluff people in any walk of life very very quickly people will ascertain whether you're talking sense whether you're adding value or whether you're uncomfortable and just trying to bluff them and I guess it was probably the first time in my life at 22, 23 that I was like I'm I'm okay at this Um, these guys back me and, and the direct feedback I got from adults Whereas if you're coaching a 15-year-old and a 16-year-old, I'm not sure they can espouse or communicate what, how much they appreciate. Maybe they've nothing to compare it to. Yeah. But certainly in Norway, maybe guys hadn't... I came from a rugby academy, a coaching rugby academy in Michaels. So my ability to communicate and give these guys some base-level understanding of the game was massively appreciated from them. And, and that was encouraging for me. Okay. And when you return from Norway... Um, where did you go from there? Did you go back straight into work? Did you come back to Michael's? Or did you basically have a game plan from where you had left off with James? Yeah. Um, I, I kind of skipped over an important piece where you're working in the school now and the school has been incredibly good to a lot of the past pupils, a lot of my peers, older and younger. And before I moved into Jamison, I think there was a six-month window where... Um, I finished college and university and I didn't I wasn't due to start for six months so Sheila Murray and Tim absolutely no problem um, gave me a job paid me over the odds probably coached a little bit of rugby so the school really looked after me in that interim period I think when I came back from Norway um, again six years on after college pretty impatient again didn't really know what I wanted to do was marketing for me not sure was I great working in a team where I didn't really get a sense of where I'm supposed to go or what I'm supposed to do? Um, so came back to Michael's, coached a lot of rugby. And kind of coaching rugby was a constant through from when I was 18. In sixth year here, I remember Greg um, Greg McWilliams was SCT coach when I was in sixth year and he's my geography teacher, a bloody great geography teacher. <laughs> and, um, and I said, Greg, is there any chance I could come out and... Uh, help or watch or, or whatever and he, he was incredibly encouraging and he said yeah come on out I'll never forget I was a sixth year Kevin Jones and Cahill Marsh and Emmett and Mark Craig were in first year and uh, I'm there helping them doing some drills and I was like jeez I like this I really enjoy this uh, so what was the question Rich? Where did you go from James Sorry. once you returned? Yeah so, so I came back to the school uh, back into coaching 
uh, was loving it. Um, so I was here for a few few months again, and I was like, right, I got to do something. I'm, I'm kind of 25, 26 now. Um, I'm incredibly impatient. I, sh- I should have been a millionaire by this stage. Yeah. So I remember having a chat with Chris O'Connor, um, aka Tiny, another stalwart of of uh, St Michael's here. And Chris was applying for a few jobs and Ernest and Young and PricewaterhouseCoopers and and different places. So I was like, Chris, show us what you're doing there. So Tiny sent me on a few links. I, I popped in a few applications and ended up with this consulting job in um, in PwC uh, inside in Spencer Dock. So I was 26, uh, going into consulting to start maybe my second or third career, hoping this would be the big one. Okay. And when you joined PwC, was that like a the job you wanted or did you feel that you were kind of just forced upon it and you think right okay here's a stable job I'm just going to dive into it hope for the best or did you actually do research and say this is what I want to do for the rest of my life no research um which is silly um I said to you something we discussed earlier every decision in life and it's only something I've come to in the last 8 10 12 weeks is either a hell yes or a fuck no pardon my French um I think I knew within six minutes of walking into PwC that was the latter. Um, I didn't have the clarity at that point in my life to, to go with my gut and something I've got considerably better at. Um, but I said I'd give it a chance and I remember I was still living at home at this stage and my kind of folks were saying, give it a chance, give it a chance. I'd be quite impatient as a person. Um, a big, I have a little notebook I carry around and like, in order to, to be valued in any organisation, you have to add value. So the concept of going into work and trudging through the processes to get your pay was never enough for me. I'm competitive by nature and I want to get ahead and I want to do well for myself. So the idea that whether I work at 10% output or I work at 90% output, it makes no difference. And it's not a money thing, it's a value thing and how I feel, am I fulfilled with what I'm doing? And I was incredibly unfulfilled working in consulting. now, whether that's the, the business model, whether that's the level I was at, I'm, I'm not sure. But I'd say within six weeks, I was looking for, for other jobs. So I knew uh, it wasn't for me. Okay. So that's eight, nine years since you've left school. And did you leave after a year? Was it a two-year stint? Um, basically, how long did that last? Yeah, so so I knew pretty quick it wasn't for me. Um, again, the whole time I've been coaching rugby on, on the backside and I was really enjoying my rugby and I was, I was uh, playing a little bit but coaching mainly and the sustaining piece from leaving school the one job I ever had that didn't feel like a job was uh, was coaching um, I was doing a little bit of work here in the school still and there was a good group of guys I remember Emmett, uh, Shabzi, myself, Chris O'Connor uh, and the famous Gary Featherstone we were training a little bit and we were kind of doing a, a hybrid CrossFit back here I got into CrossFit in, in Norway um, with a couple of guys um, I was brilliant, it was an incredible way to train it was kind of revolutionary now the, what we were doing back then versus what we're doing now is probably a completely different thing but we thought we were doing CrossFit we thought we were great so we're doing this with Gary and, and um, I barely knew Gary at that stage I knew he was this kid a couple of years below me senior cup medal in, in 07 and uh, just a, a gentleman so we're training one day up in the gym here in Michaels and um, I think Gary goes here we just we just give this a go and I think there was himself myself Tiny Emmett Shabzi in a in an all crosser group and Rory, Rory Cavanaugh was in that as well and uh, so Gary and I were like yeah we'll, we'll give it a go um, so I had a friend um, 
who opened a gym in Cork and we decided to get down to him Saturday morning. We were supposed to pick Rory Cavan up on the Saturday morning. Rory slept it out. So we were sitting outside his house. He missed it. He must have been out with you the night before. Maybe. And um, went down to Cork and we were like, wow, this is this is incredible. And just went from there. And like, where do you start? So you've got the idea in place. You've got a colleague to go on this business venture with you. What are the first few steps you have to take to actually make an idea a reality? Yeah, um, great question. And... You know, I reflect on this a little bit, um, probably not enough that I've personally won the life lottery. Mm. Uh, I think Tom touched on it, and I think uh, Brian spoke about how fortunate all of us are to have gone to a school like Michael's, and that could be Clongos or Rock or, or Belve or whatever, but to have gone to a school like this affords you with such massive, massive opportunities. Um, and it seems like my whole life I've been in the right place at the right time where we wanted to start this business um, okay, so there's a gym here, fully stacked, with parking, in the middle of the most affluent area of the country. Um, let's give it a go. So when I popped in earlier, Tim was like, uh, are you back in to rent the gym again off me? Is, is the business going that bad? Um, I didn't want to tell him the truth, but... Um, but yeah, so again, Tim, I just said, I went over to Tim, did a deal on the back of a napkin, as Tim likes to do, mm-hmm. Um which is the, probably the best way to do business, and we were off on a handshake. Um, so we just said we try it, you know, we we give it a go. Um, I remember taking a loan off uh, a nameless past pupil for thirteen hundred euro to buy some equipment, and they're pulling my hair out, going, "How the hell am I gonna gonna repay this?" I only actually repaid it about a year ago. I forgot about yeah. it, which he was happy to get back. But um, but within six eight weeks, we had seventy members. Uh, we were completely oversubscribed. We have a waiting list of 100. We had some raving fans. We barely knew what we were doing. So from early doors, similar to Tom, the first day he opened his, his shop, he was making money. We weren't making any money now, but there was enough in the business to say, you know what, there's there's something in this. Um, yeah. And like, were you taken aback with these, you know, 70 people joining? Did you have plans? Like when you were opening up, once you got the premises... We were saying, okay, we can have X amount of people. If we get any other, we're going to be struggling. Or, like, was there any plan, or was it still at the kind of stage where we're just going to go with the flow, see what happens, or had you had a strategic plan in it, place? It, it was it was kind of trial and error, I suppose. We went from, I think we went from two hours a week. We were fighting with Mary Bramble and Tim to try and say, give us more hours, give us more hours, give us more hours. And, and Tony t- didn't want to stay here till eight on a Friday night or something. But we went from two hours a week to ten hours a week, and we couldn't understand why the school wouldn't allow us to run classes before school at lunchtime in the evening. We were saying we could have five hundred members here in the school. Now, obviously, it's a school; it's not a commercial gym, yeah. um, and it was difficult for us to get our heads around at that time. But um, we were just so over overjoyed by the the success of it. Um, and I'm not saying success financially, but I'm just saying that we're putting a product out, it's being consumed, and the feedback is very, very strong. There's enough to keep going. So we, we reached the end of our agreement with uh, St. Michael's, and we were very fortunate that Jamie uh, Heaton had opened a gym up in Sandyford and gave us a dig out uh, in transition. So early days in St. Michael's, again, similar to Tom, we were like, let's go for this. Let's really... Try and try and have a go. If the business shuts down, let's let's have it on our back rather than it just withering away. 
So probably the biggest learning I've had in my life uh, professionally, we went after a premises in Spencer Dock, 5,000 square foot, um, ground floor retail unit, ideal, absolutely ideal. We spent the guts of 30, 35 grand on this premises, preparing it, getting it set up. Um, and I won't go into the, the details of it, but at the at the final moment, uh, the rug was pulled out from under us. Um, money gone, all the consultants, planners, architects taking their money, kind of laughed us off. And retrospectively, we were so green and so amateur that I'm sure they saw us from miles off. Yeah. Um, and that premises was never going to work and never has worked subsequently. But it was probably the best experience that could have happened at that stage because it could have broken us and it very nearly did. Um, but again, for whatever reason, maybe my stubbornness and, and pig-headedness we uh, we kept going, and where eventually in the search of a premises, how did finding the ideal location? A bit like what I touched on with Tom in the last podcast. You know, location is yeah. everything because it's such a personal thing. Where did you end up, and how did that come about? As in attaining the location again, the the gods of fortune and luck were 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 looking out for us. Um, a good pal of yours, Keen Cullerton. Um, I had everybody looking for premises. Yeah. I was. I was rabid, asking family, friends, sisters, uncles, if you see anything, give us a shout. We're, we're desperate. We need somewhere. And I got a phone call from my good pal, Keen Cullerton. It must have been April, May 2015. And he says, there's an old garage here uh, on Lots Road, which is which is vacant. Um, you should have a look. This is the current Lots & Co. now. Yeah. That was a, a last to Motors. So hopped in the car, met Keen down there. We're sticking our head in the window, being nosy. And the owner of Elastic comes in and goes, lads, what are you doing? Um, and we said, oh, we're looking to rent the place. He's like, oh, it's been sold, it's gone, good luck. And we're like, all oh, right. And got chatting. He goes, you know, there's a big abandoned warehouse down the other lane. And we were like, what are you, what? So wandered down the far side of the credit union, down Shaw's Lane, around to the left. Um, and this massive warehouse there. And we're looking at this going, we've gone to school in this locality for however many years, been to the Aviva, Lansdown Road, mucked around here. How do we never know this? So anyway, long story short, looking in the letterbox, hopping over a wall, having a look. This fella comes out and he goes, uh, lads, what are you, what are you doing? Um, fortunately, the landlord had just purchased, or the, the owner had just purchased this building and the offices adjacent. And straight away, brazen as you like, I said, do you fancy renting it? And your man goes, okay. We went into the office, Tim Keller style, back of an envelope, uh, drew up a deal. Um, and that was the, the kind of heads of terms or the, the beginning of, of that relationship. Um, now, obviously went through legal and all, all the proper processes, but it was just fortune because we'd, we had gone for and missed however many number of premises because we, we were great in, in, in theory saying these are our projects and projections and these are our plans but what are we actually doing who is going to take a punt on us so um fortunate that this fella he was a he was a rock guy had a, had a kid in rock um so even immediately that private school network pinged into action we knew some of the same people there was a trust there inherent trust through sport and uh, and these schools um yeah and we, we managed to get a deal done sweet so how basically would you go about you've got this massive warehouse you've got great location and then did you need outside help in order to 
you know, promote it to the next level, to do up the interior, to do up the exterior, to do up the design, or was that pretty much you're still at the stage where looking around the friends you have, you're kind of saying, right, let's just do this ourselves, or did you have to get outside help, extra funding, etc.? Yeah, I, I guess. Um, the first thing, go with your gut, get, just take it, just go. We'll worry how to fund it later, we can always get money. So, did the deal um, and we were going down the route of the banks we were going down the route of private investors angel investors venture capitalists and, and we again from the Michaels network we got some support um, which is incredibly incredibly kind ultimately I ended up doing uh, a deal with a private individual um, a pal of mine who other than potentially liking me and wanting to give me a chance um the business didn't make sense. Like it's not a high net worth business. If you yeah. get fifteen of them, maybe we're talking money. But this guy, this guy gave us enough money to get us started, which was incredibly generous. And for all he knew, it would have bombed. Um, I was incredibly humbled that he would give this money out of his pocket personally to to, to back me uh, and Gary and my vision of the business. So got the funding, and then we just went to work. So did a couple of summers uh, building with Royce's dad when we were kids so put the hard hats on Gary and I started pulling up the floors and we were incredibly incredibly lucky where we had 30 or 40 members at that time not a whole lot but anyone that could help did help we had Chris O'Connor showing up I think Emmett was down there at times so guys were showing up digging in mucking in um, and helping us to create this dream you know so we said I think we took the premises on the 1st of May sorry we took the premises around this time in 2015 and we said, we're opening the 1st of June. No matter what, we're opening the 1st of June. So we did. So committed to that. Got it all done. But we had no electricity till about the 5th of June. Okay. So we opened day one with a generator out the back, which sounded like a German tank humming. So the neighbours weren't too happy with that. But uh, yeah, look, we just we got it open the 1st of June. And it was incredible. And how how did you go about creating the the business plan? So when you're getting your investors and when you're trying to convince even members to join... Because CrossFit, to my understanding, it's only really been a, a, a common thing for, I'd say, the last five, ten years. So, like, with all these investors coming in and even trying to convert typical gym goers to CrossFit, how did you go about? Because, like, CrossFit now, it's a massive brand. Once you hear the name, everyone knows this. There's athletes attached to it. But back then, it was probably just in its, its infancy. So... How did you create a concrete kind of idea based upon th- something that wasn't world-renowned or established yeah, to such the extent it is now? Yeah, you're, you're bang on. It's it's 10 years old this year, which for a, a privately owned company, um, I'm not sure what the valuation is, but certainly in the hundreds of millions, is incredibly short, short-term. Um, you're right, in, in Dublin and in Ireland, I think we were the 17th CrossFit gym to open in the country. I think there's 150 here now. Um and when the market isn't very educated on what you're doing, trying to explain, Richie, our gym costs 200 euro a month, uh, but FlyFit costs 30 euro a month. That conversation, that education piece is a step too far. If we're spending time and effort and money trying to educate people on why, it's a waste of resource for us. Um, so there's a huge amount of trial and error on how do we do this, what do we do, do we... Do we try um, target old age pensioners from 10 to 11 when they're not working? Do we try 
target pregnant mums or or new new mothers? Do we try target students? Um, and we kind of tried all of this, but I guess we were lucky in that the core of what we did was was CrossFit, and CrossFit is is kind of targeted at the twenty five to thirty four year olds, um, money rich, time poor, who maybe have tried x number of other trainings and it doesn't work cross it works um and if it's done sensibly um and conservatively it's a it's a great um way to train um we'd follow a, a guy called uh, ben bergeron who has probably the best crossfit gym in the world and he talks about there's kind of two crossfits you see you see the crossfit games on tv which are these usain bolt um Cristiano Ronaldo type athletes, elite athletes at the top of their game who've won the genetic lottery, who are superhumans. That's 1%, less than 1%. And then you've got class-based training, which is everybody else. We are firmly in the class-based training for everybody else. We're not creating or striving to create elite level, superhuman, um, ultimate warriors. We're very much focused on a low trajectory towards a distant horizon. So that if Richie comes in and trains with us at 20, hopefully Richie will be training us at 30, at 40, and at 50. And he's bought in that, you know, this makes me feel good about myself, mentally better, physically better. Um, Yeah, and and so I guess to to round, come back around to the question, what do we do? We sell relationships. We sell an authentic place that you can come uh, get a sweat, feel good about yourself, not be bombarded by social media, bombarded by ads, bombarded by noise that you can switch off. And, and some people are really into the training and they want to get their muscle-ups. Some people couldn't care less about the muscle-ups. They want to switch off. They want to get a break from the wife or the kids. So the nice thing about CrossFit is in some way it can be all things to all people. Um, and we just try and listen to listen to what our group are telling us. Interesting. And for you personally... Like you'd got, as you were saying, like you played rugby yourself, you coach rugby yourself. And a big thought, a big part of rugby is obviously strength training, conditioning training. And like traditionally, you growing up, that's what you would probably have experienced. And then suddenly you're now presented with a new idea in CrossFit. So what did you see in CrossFit that you thought you're kind of blown away by? You're like, Jesus Christ, this is what this is so much better. or This is so much more suits people like me rather than just going into a weight room, doing a few sets of bench, doing a few curls, feeling good about yourself. What did CrossFit present to you that you were like, this is just, this is such a better environment, this is such a better thing to be doing my hour of the day rather than just lifting barbells? What I love about CrossFit, and I'll get into the kind of briefly the training side after, I love as a business that the market regulates. So if you are an awful CrossFit gym, you're going to be out of business very, very quickly. If you are a particularly good CrossFit gym, with a bit of luck, you'll do okay. Um, And 2017 is the first year globally that the numbers of new CrossFit affiliates, new gyms opening around the world have started to decline. So what's happening is the middlemen and the smaller guys are being subsumed or consumed by some of the bigger gyms. So the consolidation is happening. So in the early days, CrossFit got a bad reputation because Richie does a two-hour job on a Saturday sits a little exam and then he's um, qualified effectively to coach people um, which you can see how that can can present as problems so I love that the market regulates in that 
you get a direct correlation for the amount of effort and what you do comes in the door and, and is into the bank bank every month, if that makes sense. And from a training perspective, what I love about CrossFit is it takes the best of everything. CrossFit's nothing new. CrossFit's been around forever. It's it's your high-intensity interval training. It's your strength training. It's your your TRX, except CrossFit has a lookout and they say, okay, let, that's popular and cool let's bring a bit of that in so a regular crosser class you have a bit of yoga you have a bit of TRX you have a bit of strengthening you have barbells you've got your conditioning um, so it's kind of all things to all people uh, and to put a, a linear or a, to put um, um, an organised programme around that can be challenging but again I can't believe I've mentioned yet but I'm incredibly fortunate to have a business partner, Gary, who's who's really, really good at this. Gary's a CrossFit nerd and he's a training nerd. Um, but more than that, he's an incredibly good person. And the two of us are laser clear in that CrossFit is merely the medium we use to try and help people. I know that sounds very wishy-washy, but I revert to my comments on PwC and in Jemison where I didn't feel I was adding value. I know I'm in there adding value every single day. Um, I need to be stimulated to to get up and go to work. Like I was up at I think five yesterday, um, and I'm not feeling sorry for myself. There's up at five. I get to get up at five and go into my own business. I'm incredibly lucky to do that. I'm stimulated by this. I'm getting feedback daily on the bottom line of our, our finances, but also verbally emails texts from people saying thank you this is helping me i feel better my relationships are better work is better um and you get that feedback you know you're doing something right it's just lucky that we get paid to do it okay super and you touched on it there at the start you're saying that you could do a weekend a few days and it could be a certified coach like has there been i'm not going to say improvements because obviously different coaches are more qualified or better than others but is it still very much the case that you know you can just do a few days work and you're technically a qualified coach or if they put a more in-depth more challenging process for say a crossfit qualified coach to actually become a coach and be credited with it yeah absolutely they've completely recalibrated the accreditation process so it's quite stringent now um, and there's levels of coaches and there's speciality courses so they've really tightened it up and you see that globally with the the popularity and the growth of it if there were bandits and they were wrecking people all over the place i think it would have died off sooner okay and did you have to educate yourself like a huge amount on the process like when you came into the in 2013 when you started cross for 353 did you already have a firm base of all the ins and outs of how to do certain lifts or was it pretty much you know we've got an idea but now kind of jesus christ i need to get my act together i need to i need to get qualified i need to do a lot of reading i didn't make sure that you know as you were touching on earlier you know i can't bluff yeah because this is people as you were saying it's people's health it's people's like mental health as well so like to put that into a question like did you have to go about doing extra learning or we already sorted when you opened it up no is the answer um i guess that continuous professional development and education never stops um, and f- from a coach and I would see myself kind of as a, as a rugby coach primarily I'd coach cross with the odd time um, if you think you've got the answers or you think you've got um, you don't need to continue to learn you're probably dead in the water and someone else is going to going to take your place so absolutely from the very start we need to upskill quickly um, 
I was sneaky with that. Uh, I kind of pushed Gary into the limelight on the coaching side. Yeah. Um, and I was like, Gary, you get qualified there. We're all qualified. But um, I suppose as the business got busier from two hours a week to I think we've 70 hours a week now, there's a natural split where Gary would look after the customer-facing side and I'd look after the boring VAT and the and the playlists on Spotify. Okay. And just kind of slightly off topic, I was reading one of your blogs that you posted yesterday attached to the site and you were saying that, you know, you're quitting social media and obviously every business that's got to base a lot of its kind of just advertising, promotion, all that stuff around social media, but basically just to ask you, like, why, what is the reason for you as an individual to give up something that is so relevant to, say, your business? Yeah, um, now, full caveat, when I say I gave up social media, I have an account that I use to post. So our social media strategy or application is we post one Instagram photo or video a day, and through Instagram, you can click a button to share that to Facebook and share that to Twitter, and that's it. That's 15 seconds a day. So I do that more often than not. Um, on a personal level, I just found we're so busy. Like, we're incredibly busy, all of us, um, which is great. Um, and Gary and I spend a lot of time together, and we try and get the laptops away and dig in and kick the tires and different processes and different ideas. And something we've really honed in and focused on in the last six months is do less. We discussed this briefly earlier. Do less and do it better. So if I'm doing six things, do I have the ability to add value to those six things? So if I'm, for example, coaching four rugby teams and I'm working in a juice shop and then I have to come in and coach a CrossFit class, is that CrossFit class getting as much value out of me that they could? Is CrossFit 353 as a business getting as much value out of me as it should? Probably not. So in terms of quitting social media... I found myself, I might have six items to, to do, but I may have spent an hour on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat during the day. And I just, I reflected on a little bit. I was reading a few things, a few podcasts, watching a few videos. And I was like, I don't feel good about myself doing this. Genuinely was feeling a bit down on myself. And Grace, uh, my lovely fiance, we'd have, we'd have a long, both of us a long day at work, get home. And the odd time, two of us be sitting on our phones, not communicating. And I'm just scrolling nonsense that I don't care about, that makes me feel bad about myself, that is trying to drive me to purchase or consume. And I, I just kind of had this realisation, where a, a kind of moment of clarity where I don't need this. This is nonsense. Um, so I just said, get rid of it. It's funny that you mentioned the, the blog yesterday. Um, I was inundated with calls and texts and emails from the UK from the US I got, I got a, a text from a buddy um, being like I've been off I've been off social media for ages and I showed the wife your your blog and she's decided to give up for a week so it's not why I did it but nice to hear that people resonate with it because you and I are normal guys chances are if I'm feeling one way about this thing most people are feeling the same yeah. you know so yeah uh, to, to solidify or, or finish that question um I think for a business perspective, starting out, we were like 50 likes on Facebook. Unbelievable. What does fi- like what does that equate to in the bottom? How many memberships are you selling on 50 likes? Zero. What What's the purpose of it? It's good to validate your business. So if Richie's never heard across the 353 or 365, as people like to call it, you check Instagram, you check Facebook. Okay, they're actually there. The look and feel is nice. It's kind of consistent. 
you do your little bit of homework. Are you going to make a purchase decision based on that? I'm not sure. Maybe a 30 euro a month, certainly not a 250 euro a month. So uh, it's about removing clutter, about being more focused, doing less and trying to do it better. Okay, great answer. The, but the reason I'm actually interested in that is because I'm actually reading a book. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Irresistible. And it's basically, it highlights how attention spans have dropped by four seconds in the last 15 years, how people are spending, when you calculate everything, the time on their phone, laptops, etc., they're spending like 20 years of their lives looking at a screen. So I do definitely do think we're in a we're in a society now where technology is just dominating everything, dominating our lives, dominating you know the media, the press, all that stuff. So I definitely do think it's relevant. It's obviously interesting to get um, the feedback from you on that. And lastly, before we head off on our separate ways, what do you see as the future of CrossFit 353? What are your future plans? whether it's short term, whether it's two years down the line, whether it's 15 years down the line, where do you see CrossFit 353 being? Well, I guess trying to stick to my recent mantra or our recent mantra of do less, do better. The goal is growth. Um, Like any business, scale it. I'm not afraid of failing. I, I don't want to fail. I hope not to fail. But I prefer the business to fail having opened two, three, four units and crashed rather than letting one wither away and die. There's enough in it at the moment. The growth is significant enough to encourage us to keep going and try. Um, a little-known fact that we're often asked, what is 353, where did it come from? We didn't call it CrossFit Bath Avenue or CrossFit Balls Bridge because the goal was always to grow it and grow it internationally. 353 plus 353 is the Irish area, area dialing code. We just thought it's a non um, leprechaun throwback to Ireland that if we can open a unit in America if we can open a unit in the UK if we can open a unit in, in Dubai that it's a little throwback but not a shamrock and, yeah. a, and a pot of gold so yeah I guess the goal absolutely is growth okay and to cap it off I've done it with the, the previous podcast is a few quick fire questions so prepare yourself mentally just okay. to whatever okay. pops into your head first you just got to say it really um, but I'll I'll just get going. So, lifting weights are body weight exercises. Body weight exercises. A night in or night out? Such a loser, a night in. <laughs> uh, your favourite podcast to listen to? Um, at the moment, Ben Bergeron has a, has a Chasing Excellent podcast. And it's just, when we talk about being stimulated, it's relative to what I do. But I think there's a huge amount that everyone can get from it. So, I'd recommend anybody to give that a listen. Okay. And what would your favourite meal for breakfast be? I actually, I'm kind of a fat kid at heart. I'm still a little bit of a fat kid. So I generally try and skip breakfast and eat later, but uh, I, I get the porridge in later in the day anyway. Okay. And your favourite country to visit? Oh, jeez. Um, big affinity for America. Folks have a place in Florida, a few pals in New York and, and uh, Boston, Chicago now. So I really like America. Okay, and books or movies? I guess I'd say documentaries rather than movies. Uh, in one of the in one of the um, blogs, I'd only read a book if I can get something from it. So it's like selfish and narcissistic and weird. I'd read a biography. I'd read like Agassiz's biography or Anthony Kiedis. Um, 
or I'd watch a documentary which drives Grace insane. I'm poor at watching something like Harry Potter or yeah. where I'm like, if I can't learn from this, I don't want to do it, which is weird. But I guess documentaries to answer your question. Okay. And if you were to recommend one guest on the next podcast, who would it be? I think um, a fellow Michael's man a year ahead of me, Peter Foley, who uh, is an incredibly interesting guy, incredibly nice guy, has got a brilliant business. Um, I won't tell you too much more about it, but whether you get him or not, I'm not sure. I know he's pretty busy, but I'd recommend Peter Foley. Okay. Peter, hit me up. <laughs> and the last question is, describe yourself in three words. Humble. Optimistic. bit of a bluffer <laughs> good way to finish Henry Peter thanks a million for coming on I wish uh, I wish you and the CrossFit family uh, all the best in your future endeavours and uh, hopefully over the next few weeks I can pop myself down uh, for a summer cut yeah Richard sorry just I, I meant to start with this but uh, genuinely want to congratulate you I think this is a, an incredible platform and thing to do whether it's this is the last one because everyone hates it yeah. or it goes on to be something huge. I genuinely want to congratulate you and commend you for doing it. I think you. it's brilliant. So thanks a lot. Okay. Well, thanks a million, Peter. All the best. <laughs>